Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. Um, our reading for today is from Matthew chapter 14, and we will go. We'll be reading verses 13 to 21. That's okay. Jesus feeds the five thousand. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in, in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets, baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, morning, church. Good to look at the Gospel of Matthew again together. You know, um, it's a miraculous story that we just read, wasn't it? Um, do you expect to see miracles today? And I mean, not, not phony ones, but genuine ones. And would you know if you saw one? In Matthew 14... In this chapter, we see two of the most probably famous miracles of Jesus, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which we just read, and Jesus walking on water. Most people that, even if they don't go to church, are somewhat familiar with those miracles. At least they've heard them. Maybe in their minds, they're simply urban legends or old wives' tales or whatever it might be, but... Uh, people are familiar with associating divinity with the idea of walking on water, right? Uh, it's come so popular today that people will even use that as kind of like a cynical phrase. Oh, the guy is God, obviously. I'm looking forward to seeing him walk on water, right? Uh, when, when Tiger Woods, uh, there was an ad years ago where he, um, he actually, you know, because he's such a good golfer, uh, Prior to his accident, though, I don't know how he's going now, but hope he's okay. But anyway, uh, you know, that he was actually able to walk on water because he's so good at golfing. O oftentimes, though, uh, the idea of, of walking on water is, again, it's associated with, this, with the miraculous, right? Uh, same with the idea of, of feeding 5,000 people with just, you know, a small loaf of bread and, if that, and two little fish. Now... 
What I want to do today is actually just focus on Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and we'll get to him walking on water next week. But what I want to do today is when we look at Jesus, be familiar with it or not. Because, um, look, you don't need me to, you just heard it read. You sort of know the story. They're out in a distant place. People are hungry. Somehow Jesus, you know, did a miracle, right? But then what do we take away from that? Specifically, as we look at this text, what are we learning about Jesus Christ? Well, three things. First, we see Christ's compassion. Or you can call it the compassion of Christ, if you want to put an article there, wherever Dan Kenny is. He's not in here. Christ's compassion. Second, we'll look at Christ's challenge, or you could say the challenge of Christ. Lastly, we'll look at Christ's creation, the creation of Christ. Now, that sounds heretical. I, I don't mean literally Jesus being created. Like, I'm not an Arian. You know what that is? There was a bloke in church history named Arius who taught there once was a time when the sun was not, meaning not the sun. Everyone's still awake? Everyone's still with me? Everyone's still dry? Good on you for being here. There once was the time when the sun was not, meaning once was a time when Jesus never existed and he's God's special act of creation. God the Father created the sun. What do you think about that? Well, heresy, right? It's actually not true. So my last point sounds like that, but I don't, I'm not an Aryan, okay? Just in case on a rainy autumn morning you were worried and you woke up this morning and you'd say, I'm worried the pastor is an, is an Aryan. Set your mind at ease. Arius, I'll never meet him, okay? Nor are you if you're in Christ. So the Christ's creation or the creation of Christ. If you come up with a better outline, let me know. But those are our three points. Christ's compassion, Christ's challenge, and Christ's creation. Let's, um, let's look to the Lord now and, and, and pray that he gives us eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would make your word food to us this day, spiritual food. And we ask that you would use this preaching of the word and our active hearing of the word for the spiritual good of our souls and the building up of this church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So all four gospels record this event, Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's, so you have three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're also often called the subnoptic gospels, meaning they're very similar, right? They record, have you noticed that? If you're in a growth group, I've forced you to notice it because I'll put questions down and I'll say, what's the difference between Mark and Luke and Matthew? And you're like, I don't know. They all sound similar to me. But those three gospels, the subnoptic gospels, are very similar. But they, they all have sort of an ax to grind, right? Have you heard the phrase that all history is interpreted history? Yes? Well, that, well now you've heard it. All, fra all history, and it's true, all history is interpreted history. If something happened this morning, right, if Ellie came up here and ran up on the stage and just did a backflip or gainered off the stage, we'd all have a different way to explain that. First of all, we'd be pretty shocked, right? 
But we'd all have a different way to explain that. Some of us would talk about the rain. Some of us would talk about the reaction that all of us gave, that everyone gasped or screamed or clapped. Or some of us would talk about how Ellie's facial expression had a certain way before she did the gainer. We'd all have different ways to describe that event. All history is interpreted history. Tracking with me? So Matthew has an axe to grind. Luke and Mark have an axe to grind. John has like this big, huge sort of, if you missed all of these blokes, these three blokes, they're a bit hopeless. I'll just tell you straight up, this is who Jesus is. That's kind of what John does. Not the hopeless part, but he just says, let me just tell you straight up, theologically, bang, bang. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Bang, 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 bang. He just gets right to the theological, like, muscles of it, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this event, and so does John, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this event of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, Matthew, one of the things that I hope to show you in the Gospel of Matthew is the way in which he crafts or structures his book. Because when you read, for instance, like the Gospel of Luke, like we've been doing in our devotional reading or back in Genesis, but as you're reading the Gospel of Luke, sometimes, have you noticed, um, the sto- well, the stories, hopefully, you're compelled by them and they f- seem interesting, all these events, and you kind of, but you sort of see them as um, isolated. You sort of see them as kind of shrink-wrapped, the individual events themselves. And then you kind of get lost, or you read a parable and you're like, I wonder what the good Samaritan, you know, or lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Ooh, there's a cool, there's a cool thing there. That's in Luke 15. So sometimes you see patterns. Sometimes you get lost in trying to wonder wonder who means what in a parable, or you get caught up in a certain verse or whatever it might be. What I'm hoping uh, to show you in Matthew, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, is sort of take you up 30,000 feet and show you that this is actually a literary masterpiece. Matthew's not just randomly sort of cutting and pasting different events that happen to be related together. Does that make sense? So, so in other words, what do we have last week? What, do you remember? John the Baptist, right? And, and John the Baptist goes to the chop block. And, and you have this, if you want to call it this lust feast, where Herodias' daughter comes and dances, right? You've got this Herod throwing this elaborate, decadent, but ungodly feast, right? Whereas today, Jesus throws a messianic banquet in the wilderness. You see the contrast? I don't think that's on accident. I don't think Matthew like later was like, cool, how did that happen? Wow, I didn't make that. There's, there's, there's a connection there. In other words, we have, or a contrast, you have an ungodly feast contrasted with the messianic feast. These events are side by side. Now, hopefully that gives you a bigger picture when we think about Matthew 14. You see what I'm saying? Not just sort of getting caught in individual stories, but actually seeing a bigger bigger picture of what Matthew's doing. Because when you come to verse 13, I say all that because when you come to verse 13, it's a bit confusing. What do I mean? Look how it starts. Now, when Jesus heard this, if you're, if you're tracking along in a Bible, you, you, you can see the confusion, hopefully a little bit. If you're not tracking a Bible, you just have to believe what I'm saying is true. Now, when Jesus heard this, heard what? Heard what? What do you think it is? 
Do you think it's John the Baptist? It can't be John the Baptist. Do you remember last week? It's a flashback story. So it's a bit confusing if now Jesus heard this, referring to my flashback story. Like that would be a bit awkward. So it can't be that. What does it have to be? Well, go right back to verses one and two. When he hears the report about Jesus, who hears the report about Jesus? Herod. Herod can't be trusted. Jesus knows that. We know that. We saw that last week, right? Herod caves under pressure. Jesus knows this. And so what does he do? Well, he, he tries to step out of the limelight a bit. In roughly one year, he'll go to the cross. So, you know, it's not like Jesus is a coward. He knows the day. He knows the hour. In one year, he'll go to the cross. But he still has work to do, you see. So now he withdraws. He sort of, he goes a bit covert, sort of flying under the radar. But keeping a low profile seems impossible for Jesus, right? I mean, once the bush telegraph sounds the alarm that he's headed off towards the north east shore of Galilee, when the crowds hear this, they end up running on foot around the top of the lake so they actually arrive at the spot before he and his disciples even show up. Did you catch that? Once the bush telegraph goes out, the coconut wireless, as they say in Hawaii, the, you know, once, once people get there here, where's he going? It's like, you know, if you've been in uh, Etalong and you can see like the little ferry going over to Pearl Beach, I think it is. Once people hear about that, is it Pearl Beach? Palm Beach. Once they find out that he's heading to home and away, <laughs> right? People somehow, you know, it'd be like today, I don't know how they'd get there quicker than that, but maybe they on jet ski or whatever it would be, or maybe they took a helicopter over there. But the whole point is, before Jesus ever even shows up at the place, the multitudes are there waiting for him. Now, those of you that are introverts, that would already seem overwhelming, wouldn't it? You've already been, you know, tired, dealt with people enough, and then there's hundreds of people there on the shore waiting for you when your boat lands. And look, if there was any affair, if there was ever a time when when Jesus is tired or needs a break, it would be fair. I think now would probably be a fair time for him. I mean, just look at the text in in Matthew. He says, "Look, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew." from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now notice, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Unbelievable. By the time Jesus stepped out of the boat, the crowds were already there, hundreds of them waiting for him to do his stuff. Jesus must have been tired, right? Need of rest. And I think it would have been fair enough for him to say, look guys, I'm knackered. I need rest. I need some space. Go home. No offense, but go home. And look, the disciples are, they're a bit distressed. They've heard about John the Baptist going to the chop block and that could be them. That could be their lot as well. So they're still sitting in that space at the moment. And I, I just, I remember I, like, I try to get away. It's like a fame, you know, famous people, how the paparazzi sort of chases them around. You can't seem to ever like get away. I'm just trying, I'm just, I need some space. That's why I left. So if, if there was ever a time for Jesus to sort of say, guys, no offense, I just, I need, I, I, I need some space. I need some time. It would be now. 
steps ashore and he sees the crowd, how does Matthew describe his response? He had what? Compassion for them. Now, truth be told, this verb compassion is a bit tricky to carry over from Greek to English. It's fun to say though, I'm a bit of a dork, so I like words, but the word here is splachna. Isn't that, I mean, that's just fun to say. I know, I know I'm a bit of a dork. But uh, splachna, is, that's, that's compassion, right? Um, that might sound cool to you, it might sound weird, but regardless of how you feel about it, it doesn't solve our problem with what do we do with that word. I mean, how do we best translate it into English? I suppose you could say that he pitied them, or you could say that he had sympathy, but that still doesn't really translate it best. Have you, how many of you, just a show of hands, how many of you have ever tried to learn another language? Japanese or Korean or Chinese or Mandarin or you know, whatever, whatever. Some of you, English is your second language, right? And, and if you've ever done this, you know that there's not a word-for-word -word correlation sometimes, right? Like people have said, well, it's coming down. Too bad I'm not in a really cool point where I'm talking about God's wrath right now or something like that. And the wrath will find like the lightning bolts go. We'd have everybody converted in this place that day, you know? It'd be amazing. So anyway, so if you ever, if you ever tried to learn, uh, sometimes you know that there, you just can't translate one word perfectly over to another. If you haven't studied another language, you're like, what do you mean? You just, trust me, you just, you just can't sometimes. It, that's just the way things are when you learn another language. So when we think about this word splachna, I, it's hard to actually just carry it over into English. But thanks to you Aussies, you guys have solved the problem. You have. You Aussies, for once, have done something. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> you guys have done, and here, here's what it is. You say the word gotted. He said, this is my, my, I was gutted, right? Now, if I understand that, if I understand that word, besides my terrible impersonation there, gutted usually means experiencing a sense of shock, like when you discover something terrible has happened. Something is so significant and so emotional, it makes your stomach turn. Am I, is that good? Am I on point there? Great. Well, that's what's happening to Jesus. When he sees this crowd, he's moved with compassion. His heart goes out to them. He's gutted. Now, let's be real. You can hear that and go, cool. I mean, that's kind of what I expected Jesus to do, right? I mean, isn't he gentle Jesus? Isn't he always filled with compassion? Isn't that just indicative of who he is? Isn't fundamentally Jesus just filled of compassion? That's just cool. Yes. But listen, it must not escape us that by doing this under such circumstances, remember, he needs a break, comes to the shore. By doing this under such circumstances, Jesus was also setting an example for the disciples and, in a sense, for us. Jesus is modeling perfectly self-denial for the sake of ministry and compassion for people. Here's my question for us this morning. Wyoming Church of Christ. Are we as a church 
walking with a view to show compassion towards one another. I wonder how many of you walked in here this morning and mainly thinking about yourself, right? Nobody welcomed me here. Nobody even said hello to me. The pastor never says hello to me. And I didn't like the song that we sang. I felt it was a bit kind of dirgy. I didn't like it. And I didn't really connect with Nigel's prayer. I mean, I don't know, it felt a bit flowery to me. I don't really like this church very much. It's why I don't come here very often, but no one would notice because no one ever asks. I'm going to go to the other church part-time. Look, I want you to understand, when you come to this place, especially if you call yourself a Christian, your job is to, it's, it's to be gutted for the people that are here. I can imagine in a crowd this size, which are not very many of us here, but still, in a, in a room this size, there are people going and struggling through some real things. Have you ever stopped to consider what's going on in their life? Or are you just so wrapped up in your own petty problems? I mean, have you ever, like, did you ever think about all the one another passages in the scriptures? That, that your Christianity is meant to do in a community. And that when you come in here, you're, 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 you're not just coming in sort of being the spectator or, or the hopefully not the cynic and going, didn't like the song, didn't like this, didn't hear that, blah, blah, blah. But actually to go, oh, actually the person either behind me or in front of me or down at the end of the row of me or whatever, they actually could use my encouragement. My and uh, You see? What if our church was like that? What if our church, what if people came in here early, by the way, so that you can get your head on straight. Not, not fumbling in late, getting the sleep out of your eyes. But what if our church came in here early with the heart to say, I want to have compassion. I want to serve. I want to pray for the individual that's really struggling with this, that, or the other thing. Hey, maybe this week, I, and I find out during the course of the conversation that they're really hard up for money, and maybe I can make them a meal. And then when I go and I bring them the meal, I can pray with them. That's compassion, you see. That, that's, and, and how easy could it be for us to say, well, that's just not my gift. You know, I do my thing to serve here. That's not my thing. Or you know what, I'm too introverted. Or I'm too whatever, or I'm too tired. I mean, I'm tired, I'm, you know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of the pastor blasting me every week. He's lucky I'm here. And now, he's, now he has the audacity to smack me around. I'm tired of this guy. Again, what's your view here, you see? Is your view, to, are, you cons, are you coming in as a, as a worshiper or like a consumer? Are you coming in with care or, or this sort of just scrutinizing, judging? I mean, what, honestly, for those of you that are just sitting there and just going, maybe I've described you pretty, pretty spot on. Like, what are you doing? Does that ever even occur to you? Like, does it even occur to you? Like, what, what, in terms of, I, I don't mean like particular ministries here. I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying just having compassion for other people. The Puritan John Bunyan put it this way. He said, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. I like that. 
You, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Now, if, if you jump back into verse 15 with me, there's something here that's absolutely extraordinary. As Jesus is, is showing compassion to these crowds, as he's healing people, the sun is setting. And the disciples come up. <clears throat> Jesus, we hate to, uh, we hate to be the, you know, sort of a wet blanket here, take the wind out of the sails, but it's getting late, man. People are getting hungry. And they're gonna have a bad taste in their mouth about your sermon or your ministry here, or no taste in their mouth. Um, we gotta send them away. Look at verse 15. They say, isn't it interesting the disciples come and tell Jesus what to do here? <laughs> now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day, it's almost over, right? There's nothing like stating the obvious. This is a remote place, they said. Oh, Jesus wasn't aware of that. And it's already getting late, Jesus. You mean I don't have a watch? I don't know what time it is? The disciples seem all too good at telling their master what's happening and what needs to be happening. Notice they tell Jesus, so what do they say? Send the people away. I mean, you could argue, fair enough, that that's just being practical. They don't have food. 5,000 people, plus women and children, and they've just got a tiny little snack, basically. So, and if, and by the way, they're out in the middle of nowhere. So if they send the people away, at best, they're going to find these little towns, little small unwalled hamlets, you could say it that way, like these basically little shanty little things where there's not, maybe even there, like it's not like they can say, send them away to the shops. They're like way out in the middle of nowhere. So you could argue that they're just trying to be practical here. Fair enough. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, our best suggestion is to get these people out of here and on their way. If they're going to get any supper at all, they're going to have to leave, like now. And it's at this point, in verse 16, that Jesus shocks them. And what does he say? What's his command? You. You give them something to eat. This is where I wish this thing was recorded. Like on, this is where I wish we had this on film and we could watch this on Netflix. Imagine the looks in their eyes. Did we, what, us give something to eat? Are, are, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting, the Gospel of John tells us that Philip, who is, he begins to thinking uh, sort of, this whole situation through in financial terms. He goes, I, I tell you right now, Jesus, it would take eight months wages to shout the bill for all of this. You don't honestly think that we're gonna muster up that kind of cash and run to the shops, do you? But Jesus doesn't quit. He says, well, how much do you have? <laughs> uh, five loaves and two fish. All right, well, let's feed them that. This is an impossible situation, right? They will never 
be able to fulfill the command that Christ has given them in their own strength. Only Jesus can supernaturally accomplish what he's told them to do. And that's how it goes with ministry, friends. When you're at the point where you feel outmatched in ministry, you think, Lord, there is no way that I can help this person. Lord, there is no way that I can reach this group of people. You are right where God wants you in ministry. Because all true Christian ministry is beyond our personal resources. We face incredible obstacles here on the coast. And we can quickly look at this suburb and think, how in the world can we match the problems that we have to minister to? How can we do that? Here's the answer. We can't. (laughs) We never can. But God can, and he will. All the power necessary for reaching and feeding the sheep comes from the chief shepherd himself. Come back to me here with Matthew. So after directing the crowd to sit down, Jesus, look here in verse 17. Then he said to him, right, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Wow, here it goes. It's on. Either either this is gonna be a dramatic display that Jesus is none other than the almighty creator, God himself, or it's going to be a bust. (laughs) And the 12 take the food and begin to serve And they continue to serve and continue to serve and the miracle unfolds. And did you notice it's not like, you know, you could probably make bread go a little bit farther, right? Like I'd feel kind of, I'd be going for the fish. I love fish. I'd be going for the fish, right? But you couldn't make fish go very far. And so you could argue, well, maybe, maybe each person had a little bit of a snack there. No, it says that they were what? Satisfied. Here were the disciples going, uh, Jesus need to wrap this thing up. It's getting late. And then when the whole thing's done, they find themselves bumping into each other with these 12 baskets fulls of leftovers. That is supernatural. Only Christ, the creator himself, can do something like that. It's worth saying that this miracle is about more than just putting food in people's stomachs, by the way. The miracle points beyond the gift of the bread to the giver of bread, to the bread of life himself. Jesus's point in doing this miracle is to draw the disciples' eyes from the physical provision of bread to Christ's spiritual provision for what we need for eternal life. That's why Jesus said, friends, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As that food was necessary that day, right, for living, No one's denying that. But so the spiritual vision is only can be found in Christ if we are going to have eternal life and fellowship with him. But see, the Lord is showing you there the exceeding sufficiency of Jesus Christ to meet every soul need that you have, friend. Jesus is more than sufficient for every need we have. The only thing standing between us and his filling of that need is our willingness to admit we have a need. But you see, we are prideful and we don't want to admit that we are poor and in need of compassion, do we? 
We don't want to admit that we are sinners who have offended him and have offended one another. And Christ reaches out and says, I can fill every need. I can be the bread of life. So what's stopping you today? What's the obstacles in your heart today to receiving the provision that Christ says is there for you? Is it your pride? Is it the consequences of confessing the sin which is between you and God or perhaps you and others? What's holding you back today? You know, it's interesting. The number here, did you, did you get that? I think Matthew really has a penchant for numbers, personally. I mean, he didn't have to list the people or the remain, remaining leftovers, but he says 12. Isn't that interesting? Every, every disciple that doubted had a basket full left that they were carrying. And again, friend, just to reiterate to you, whatever context you're in, when you feel absolutely outmatched, maybe it's simply, and it's not simply, maybe it's your family. You just don't even know where to begin. You feel completely like, what am I even supposed to do? You can hear the words of Jesus, give them something to eat. Point them to the bread of life. Jesus will satisfy every soul longing that we've ever had. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time to reflect on your son, the Lord Jesus, who is the bread of life. Lord, if there's any here that are hungry and thirst, let them come. Would you open their hearts, draw them to yourself. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So if you are here and you are a Christian, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that text is that Jesus takes, thanks, prays. Some have argued that this is a sort of a, a, a precursor to communion. Um, I don't think that's the main point of the text, but it's interesting. Um, this communion is a time where, you, you can hear it in the word, right? Communion, we're communing with God and with each other. This is a time where the local church comes together to break bread, to reflect on what Christ has done. His body broken for us, his blood shed on the cross. He, God, made him who had no sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you are in Christ, this is an opportunity for you to reflect on that reality. I do think you'd be doing yourself and the church a disservice to take it flippantly. And if you're not sure if you're a Christian, just to kind of go, well, I guess that this is what I've always done. I'd encourage you parents that if you have kids to really process this with them and say, if you're going to be taking communion, do you know what you're doing? I had a good conversation with someone last week and they said, well, my child takes communion and I'm not so sure they should. And my response was, well, would you would you want me to ba publicly baptize them? And they said, uh, no. And I said, well, then they shouldn't be taking communion. <laughs> we only have two sacraments or two ordinances, if that if sacrament scares you, two ordinances in the, in the local evangelical Protestant church today, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and they really, those are a physical, dis a physical display of an inward spiritual reality, right? And that's what we're doing when, when we reach out and we, you know, I know, that they, I know that they come by and you're sort of like, well, well, but when it comes by, you're identifying with Jesus Christ. 
that you'd be just as confident to be baptized as you are when you're taking communion. You see? We only have two, we only have two sacraments in the, in the local church. So I just, I encourage you with that, not to scare you, not to discourage you, not to have you hate me. I don't do any of those things to really feel the weight of this act that we're about to do as a corporate local assembly here, okay? So if you're here and you're a Christian, you're saying, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, then you cling to that, you, you celebrate that reality. And if you're not, I'd encourage you just to look on, allow those elements to go by, all right? So I'd ask ushers to come forward and pass out the elements. When you do, this is to do together. And so just encourage you, rip off all the bits and pieces, hold on to those together. Sorry, hold on, to, and we'll take it together as a church, all right? read here from Matthew 26. This is when Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. And it's interesting because like communion, it represents a spiritual reality, but also points forward to what's called the Messianic banquet. And he says this, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it 
to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And we look forward to that day, right? That was just a small little picture of Jesus providing his, his, this bread for 5,000 people, which ultimately points forward to the messianic banquet where we'll be with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth. So we say, come Lord Jesus, bring, bring that day. Um, I'd ask the band to come, uh, band, <coughs> the two ladies. I think it's just as good actually, having the two ladies. It, um, uh, look, if, if you're here, I think just that, what a great opportunity is to gather, isn't it? To come together and gathering, just to encourage you, it's not just about remember us being consumers or liking or dislike. It's about, about us actually doing a one anotherness. You know, the church assembled, the, the, the gospel made visible is the church assembled. Okay? Now, not everyone here is regenerate, but those that are here that are, that are trusting in Christ, are gathering together. This is an, it's a great time to, to, not forsake meeting together, as the scripture says. And, and we believe that this gathering is the local church. And so one of the things that we have done since COVID, to, for, because of the extenuating circumstances, is being able to stream um, to those that are in uh, need, um, not those that want to sleep in and stay in their pajamas and watch the service, but for those that are in physical need, um, to be able to, they can't physically gather here, or they've got a number of reasons why they can't be here. And we're going to continue to make that stream available to those people, but not to everybody else. So come, come Easter, or I should say post-Easter, uh, we're actually not going to continue to stream the services just for the world to watch. We are going to have our sermons uploaded. So if someone wants to, you know, are they crazy enough to download one of my sermons or whatever, they can, they can do that or Dan's. But what, what, what we don't want to do is feel that someone can live stream from wherever in the world and say, well, that's my church. No. If they're not here assembled and gathered together, they're not a part of this church. Now, I understand that said, let me give the caveat, people get sick, people go on holiday. Yes, 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 yes. But we don't want to have people feel, we think church means assembly, <laughs> gathering. This is the local church happening. And so we, we don't think that it's actually right or actually helpful to people to just, dist and for wh whoever those people are, but I don't even know, well, we typically get, I don't know, 30 or 40 hits on YouTube of people that streamed in. So the, so the sermon, if you miss the sermon, okay, I'm not saying you miss it, that's it, you'll never hear it. You want to upload it, go online and you listen to it. But we're really trying to encourage you guys, our church, to make a habit of not, not, not neglecting meeting together, but coming together to actually do this thing called church. So come Easter, we are going to have a special sort of a, an exception. Those that are in physical need that can't be here, we will be able to stream out to some of those people, but not just to the mass anonymous internet multitudes.
we're, we're just we're not going to do that anymore because we don't think that that's church. That's that's a live stream, but that's not church. Someone can watch it from a distance. So again, there's no you know you just preached on compassion and now you're being un- no. Listen, we are going to be for those that are in physical uh, need and have that. That's why we're going to make that available to them. But what what we're trying to nip in the bud here. And hear me really clear on this. We're trying to nip on the bud. Is this, oh, yeah, well, I, I, have, I can come to, come to church randomly every two, three weeks, whatever, and then I'll just catch it on the live stream. No. That, that's what we're nipping on the bud. If that's you, you can continue to listen to the sermon online, but I, I just, it's hard for us to consider that you're really a part of this church, you see? Th- those that are here are going to be here. And not only be here present, but be here spiritually, right? Have that compassion to... So, so after we sing this last song, or reflect on you singing it, let's, let's actually be proactive to go be compassionate, have that compassionate heart.